We hope you enjoy this message and that it encourages and inspires you. For more information, head to lifepointwithanee.org.au. Have you ever eaten alone in a restaurant? When I mean alone, I mean alone. No book or phone with which to look through to make it look like you're not alone or to make it look like you're purposefully alone. Just you, your cutlery and your meal. I've said before, before COVID hit last year, I used to go with Bodie, my dog, up to Noosa every Wednesday, same restaurant, same seat, same meal, and have a meal every week alone. Except I always took my phone, so I didn't look like I was alone, and I read the newspaper. I remember one week I forgot my phone. I had ordered my meal, I excused myself with the the manager of the restaurant, went back to my car, got my phone, came back to my seat and started to flick through the newspaper. Now I'd already read the newspaper that day several times. So I'm not sure the Sydney Morning Herald was going to offer anything particularly new or exciting. But as I reflected, I realised that's because I didn't want to appear to be alone. It's okay to be alone. It's just not okay to appear to be lonely or to be alone without choice. Even if I did want to be alone, there's so many good things that happen when you're alone. So many great things happen to our souls and our spirits and our hearts when we're alone. But I want to just hazard a guess, a sneaking suspicion that the majority of you, like me, don't mind being alone. We just don't like to be lonely. Sadness because one has no friends or company. When I grew up as a teenager, the term Nigel No Friends, apologies to any Nigels, Nigel No Friends was the common vernacular either in jest or in spite that describes someone who appeared to have no friends or company. And when that term was said in spite, I think it was one of the most atrociously shameful titles to have across your forehead. Not because of your circumstances, because the person who says it couldn't possibly know your circumstances, especially at school, but because of what that term tries to describe about you as a person. That you're not significant, that you're not valuable, and you have no worth. In fact, No worth whatsoever that there's no one in the world who'd want to be your friend or be in your company. When LifePoint talks about having a culture of connecting and belonging as a value, an aroma of what people, when they walk into this place, it's not about you or I having BFFs. That's not a dynamic, a relational dynamic that we can orchestrate. It happens naturally. It happens outside the realm of manipulation or structure. It just happens. But connecting and belonging at LifePoint is about having people around us who reflect back to us through their availability, their love and their faithfulness that you matter. 
that you are significant and that you are of immense value. And I don't think the challenge here at LifePoint is convincing you that that's a worthwhile cultural value. I don't think it's a challenge to convince you that you need connection and that you desire to belong. What I think the challenge is, is embodying it, being it, living it, breathing it, being home, not just in a slogan, but in our experience. This is a picture of my son, Lawson. Lawson has an intellectual disability called Fragile X. He's 12, and sometimes he thinks and he acts like a 12-year-old, but really, often, his mind is more of a 10-year-old or an eight-year-old, maybe even sometimes a six-year-old. Let me show you a video of Lawson playing hide-and-seek with a bunch of kids in our home. And what you'll get is an idea of how Lawson tries to process the rules, how the play, how the game can be played. Here's Lawson. Uh, I'm in the bin. What are you doing in the bin? I want the. I, I got I got moved to the other dispin. Are you hiding? Oh, the other one's going to be a bit yucky. You don't want to go in the other one. How about in the fridge? Okay, so Lawson, after being in the recycling bin, thinks that the red bin's a great idea to hide in. Then when I suggest to him that the red bin may not be the best option, the fridge is the best next idea for Lawson. I'm not quite sure which drawer he thought he was going to fit into, but in Lawson's mind, the fridge was a brilliant idea. Sometime last year when the kids were visiting from Sydney, we went to some friends' home for lunch. There were five boys aged between the 12 and 15 years, including Lawson. Four of the boys were really skilled with skateboarding. So four of the boys put their helmets on, grabbed their skateboards, pulled out the skate ramp onto the concrete in the backyard and began pulling off tricks. They'd go up the ramp and over the ramp and they'd go fast around the corners. And every time one of the kids did a maneuver that was a bit trickier and a bit harder, you could hear the oohs and the ahs and the, that was awesome. Pat on the back, great, as they egged and encouraged each other on. A couple of the boys took their shirts off. And I remember looking at these young men thinking, with those shoes, skateboard shoes and those boardies and the skateboard and the helmet and the bronze body from all that surfing, you look cool. I want to be you. Well, enter Lawson. He's on the sideline watching a little bit, but it doesn't take long for him to be inspired to want to be a part of the boys, to do what they're doing. He takes his shirt off, finds a spare helmet lying around that he could use, spots a skateboard that's not being used for the tricks and maneuvers they're currently doing, and he goes onto the concrete, four boys down one end, Lawson down the other. And Lawson begins to tic-tac on the concrete. If you don't know what tic-tacking is, I can't demonstrate it to you. 
But it's what you do when you want to move along the concrete. Every time Lawson moves a little bit further, he tic-tacks a little bit stronger, he looks up. Are the boys noticing? Did they see what he just did? Is he getting the oohs and the ahs that the other four boys are getting from each other as he increases his ability, his tricks, his maneuvers? From time to time, with parent prompting, one of the boys from the four would go from one end of the concrete to the other end of the concrete. They'd spend a few minutes with Lawson and they would encourage him and they'd speak life into him. They'd pat him on the back, give him a few tips. That's great, Lawson, well done. And then they'd go back to the other end of the concrete. Four down one end, one down the other. The parents, me, on the, on the sideline, would cheer Lawson on. Great job, Lawson, that was so good. And a smile would appear on Lawson's face as he took the encouragement. But his constant gaze wasn't to dad. It was to the other end of the concrete where the boys were. Did they see it? Were the boys amazed just like dad was? I remember going home from that lunch feeling puzzled, I think. Not because the four boys down one end of the concrete didn't care or like Lawson. They did care and they did like Lawson. But I've observed that scene play out with Lawson again and again and again. The kids at one end and Lawson at the other. It could have been in the cul-de-sac playing a ball game or a chasing game. Lawson hangs on the outside a little while the rules are being explained or formed. One compassionate kid comes out of his tribe from his end of the concrete, goes to Lawson's end of the concrete and tries to explain the rules of the game as best he can and as best as Lawson can comprehend what's happening. And then it's game on. Every man and woman for himself. And Lawson jumps into the game with all the enthusiasm that you can imagine any 12-year-old boy would. With hooting and hollering and yesing and, and tapping and tagging. But it doesn't take long for Lawson to realise that he's not playing by the rules that all the other kids are. They're not responding the same way to him that they're responding to each other. He doesn't get the same encouragement. Or when he gets the rules wrong, someone tells him he's doing it wrong. And bit by bit, you'll see Lawson retract. He'll move towards the basketball hoop at the end of our driveway and find a basketball and start shooting by himself. And then when he feels like he's finished there, he'll go, put the basketball down and go upstairs and he'll start to watch TV. The kid's blissfully unaware that he's even left the game. I don't think Lawson's experience is too different from some of ours. Church community can feel like that sometimes, can't it? We walk into a community of people that are friendly and caring, and for a moment they leave their end of the concrete and come to yours where you're all alone. They leave their tribe and become for a moment a tribe with you. 
while they're up at your end of the concrete, they include you in games and they explain the rules. They tell you where the yes desk is and who to talk to if you want to be part of the place. They encourage you to get into a connect group. Maybe be part of a, a, a team playing upstairs. But once you know all the rules, it's every man for himself. You at one end, they at the other. And from time to time, we slip away. We disengage, we leave the church community, and it seems that the people that we engaged with are blissfully unaware that we're no longer part of the game. Ever happened to you? Is it happening to you now? Do you feel like Lawson at the basketball hoop? Or are you walking down the driveway about to go watch TV? This is Oscar. Oscar's the one in the middle. I'm the one with breakfast on my lip. Oscar is a regular 11-year-old kid. But Oscar's taught me a thing or two about helping people connect and not the kind of connection that, and the kind of connection that makes people feel significant, valued, and deeply loved. After a few months of getting to know Lawson, Oscar decided that with Lawson, there wasn't going to be two ends of the concrete. There was one. And both he and Lawson were going to play at the same end of the concrete together. The challenge for Oscar though, is that all the games and the activities that Oscar would usually play as a regular active 11 year old boy were down his end of the concrete. And Lawson wouldn't understand all the rules. His emotional intelligence doesn't read all the circumstances like others or all the emotions. He might get the rules wrong or mixed up. So Oscar, instead of expecting Lawson to play his games and learn his rules, Oscar went to Lawson's end of the concrete and played Lawson's games by Lawson's rules. And every time Oscar is with Lawson, that's what he does. He plays at Lawson's end of the concrete, Lawson's games by Lawson's rules. And you should see the smile on Lawson's face. The other day, Oscar sat me down and he asked me to watch a video of a dad sharing about his autistic son. And at the end of the video, Oscar turned to me and said, AB, I get it. They call people with special needs like Lawson special needs because they make the world so special. My life is so much better because I have Lawson in it. So, what's the difference? What's the difference between four boys who like Lawson and care about Lawson and Oscar who likes Lawson and cares about Lawson? I think the difference is Philippians chapter 2 says this. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. 
Not looking to your own interests, but each of you looking to the interests of the others. If we rephrase that verse to reflect what Oscar is doing, I think it would say something like, I choose not to play the games that I enjoy by the rules that make sense to me, and I play the games that Lawson likes to play by the rules that make sense to him. And in that moment, in that transaction of Oscar laying down self, there is a message sent to Lawson that Lawson hears loud and clear that he is significant, that he is valued, and that he is an immensely worthy person. And Oscar changes Lawson's life. Here's the beautiful thing. When you and I choose to lay down our life, when we lay aside our interests and our needs, push them into the background and elevate the needs and interests of those around us, we communicate value. We communicate significance and worth. And we change people's worlds. I think about the actions of humility and selflessness of Jesus. That moment where there was a woman who had been bleeding for over a decade, presses into the crowd that's around Jesus, if only to touch the hem of his cloak that she thinks and believes that she'll be healed. She somehow makes her way through all the legs, touches his cloak, power comes out of Jesus and Jesus notices the power's been drained out of him. And instead of just continuing on his way, believing, oh, well, someone touched me, they must be healed, Jesus stops. He stops in the middle of this hustling and bustling crowd to find the person who touched him. Why? She'd already been healed. He could have just kept going on his busy way. But instead, Jesus stops because he wants to convey to the woman significance, value, and worth. She's worth stopping for. Could you imagine all the people behind Jesus going, Oh no, that woman touched Jesus. That means he's unclean. Oh my goodness, oh my goodness. Jesus was willing to go through all the rumors behind his back because she needed to hear. She was valued, significant, and worthy. Or I think of Zacchaeus who's up the tree while Jesus is passing by. Little old Zacchaeus, the tax collector. In fact, he's made a life career out of ripping people off. He's the one who exacts, extracts tax for the government, but he always adds a little bit more off the top that makes him rich, and people hate him, marginalize him, despise him, the greedy little man. And as Jesus passing Zacchaeus up the, uh, up the tree, Jesus stops in front of Zacchaeus' tree and says, Zacchaeus, come on down. Now again, you can imagine all the crowd behind him saying, you don't want to connect with that guy. He's a ratbag. He's a rascal. Keep moving, Jesus. Instead, Jesus wants to convey value, significance, and worth. And he says to Zacchaeus, I'm having lunch with you today. Come on down. In that moment of laying down self and giving to Zacchaeus what he needed, as you read on in that passage, trams formed Zacchaeus' life. And of course, the ultimate laying down of self was when Jesus stretched out his arms on the cross. 
And in fact, it's the very moment that you and I, when we come together in communion, look at and remind ourselves of what? How valuable, significant, and worthy we are. That act of sacrifice speaks to our very soul. That even when we feel alone, we're not alone because there's one person, his name is Jesus, that remembered us and loved us so much that he would lay down self in order to elevate our needs. And it speaks to us and encourages us. Greater love has no one than they lay down their life for a friend. A culture of connection here at LifePoint is not about a conversation, although it might include it. It's not even about knowing someone's name, although it might begin there, or how they occupy their time, although that might be a step toward it. Connection here at LifePoint is when you and you, and you, and you, and you guys across the back, this group of people here, and those in the cheap seats, and those down the front, when you choose to lay down self, Lay down your interests and needs and elevate the needs of those around you in that transaction, in that moment, in that handing over of self, a message is sent directly to the heart of the other that they are valuable, that they are significant, and they are of immense worth and lean in, it changes people's lives. Today, this very day, not tomorrow, not down the end of the week, today, this very day, you can change someone's life by connecting. You may never be their BFF, but you might just make this their home. Who do you want to be? Four boys down one end who like and care about Lawson, but have very little impact. Or one boy who chose to like and care about Lawson and transform his life. The beautiful thing is you get to choose but it's only when all of us are doing it does it become our culture.